My guest this week is independence economist Julian Jessup. Julian, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the cost of living is going higher and higher, and so are energy bills at the moment. What are the main reasons for this situation we find ourselves in? Well, there are three reasons why we've ended up where we are. And all of them, by the way, are global. This isn't a specifically UK phenomenon. It's not particularly to do with Brexit, for example, or or government policy. Um, Instead, it's uh, three factors. One is that a positive one, which is that the, the global economy has rebounded more quickly than most people expected from the from the COVID pandemic. So you know, demand has been stronger than anticipated, uh, while at the same time, quite large parts of the global economy is still constrained by COVID itself, including problems in Chinese supply chains as they try and crack down on COVID with a so-called dynamic zero COVID policy. So it's partly a demand story. Uh, on top of that, of course, though, we've had some additional supply shocks recently. Mm. Uh, and this is primarily about the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine that obviously, first and foremost, is a, a human tragedy, but it's also disrupted energy markets and, and also food markets. So uh, the sanctions on the supply of Russian energy have pushed up energy prices and uh, Ukraine in particular is a major supplier of loads of very important agricultural commodities like wheat and, and vegetable oils. So uh, that's pushed up prices as well. Um, the third factor, which actually I don't think gets enough attention, but in my view is at least as important as the others, um, is what central banks have been doing over the last few years. As a result of the, the COVID recession, they've been printing enormous amounts of money uh, and using it to, to buy government bonds. And they've also kept interest rates very low. So uh, monetary policy ha- has been extremely loose, and that's provided the, the fuel that's allowed prices to rise. Um, I think if the central banks hadn't done that, it's quite likely that obviously food and energy prices would have risen, but there would have been a better chance that would have been offset by lower inflation elsewhere. Um, as it is, what's happening is that the inflation pressures that started in food and energy has spread out throughout the entire economy. And we're seeing lots of other prices rising sharply as well. So looking specifically at the, the cost of living for a moment, do you think the measures that the government have introduced so far to tackle this issue are enough to ease the burden on many families and households? Well, there are a number of different ways of looking at this. First of all, if we're thinking about the overall level of inflation, then that's actually the Bank of England's job or mm. central banks in general. It's not the responsibility of the, of the government. So if inflation is too high, then I think we should point the finger of blame at the Bank of England for, for having kept monetary policy too loose for too long. So interest rates have been too low and they've continued printing money even when the economy is rebounding quite sharply. So the um, the high rates of inflation of the Bank of England's fault. However, the, the government does have a responsibility to, to help in, in two ways. Um, one is to make sure that, that markets can, can work efficiently. So um, a lot of the house the problems that we have in the cost of living are uh, partly to do with um, excessive regulation of the economy. So the housing crisis, for example, is partly caused by um, restrictions in the planning system that make it harder for people to, to build houses. Um, the high cost of childcare partly reflects sort of overly restrictive uh, rules and regulations set by the government. And I put lots of other examples I could think of where uh, the government has intervened in ways that are unhelpful for, for inflation. Um, the other important thing that the government can do is, is to protect the most vulnerable in society from higher inflation. Um, as a general rule, actually, the inflation rates faced by people are pretty similar, whether you're a poor person or a rich person. Um, but the big difference is that poorer people tend to have fewer savings to, to tide them over um, 
a temporary squeeze on their incomes. Um, they're also li- less likely to have bargaining power in labour markets, so they can't you know, ask for bigger wage increases from their employer. And also they spend most of their income on essential goods and services, so it's very hard for them to make savings elsewhere. You know, Some people might be able to you know, cut spending on luxuries to continue paying their food and energy bills, but, but poor people can't do that. So there's no doubt at all that there's a big responsibility on the, on the government to help low-income households. I think here it's done a it's done a decent job, but it could do more. On the positive side, uh, the government has taken action in a number of important areas. On the tax side, it has um, adjusted the way that it runs the universal credit benefit system, which basically means that people will be able to keep more of their universal benefit benefit payments as they earn more money. That's a good thing. They're also about to raise the threshold at which you start paying national insurance. So that's effectively a a tax cut for for low-income earners. Um, They've intervened in a few other ways as well. They've provided additional help on on council tax and some of the components of the the energy bill they've they've helped out there as well. Um, For example, the the warm home discount, which is a payment that goes to low-income households, that's been increased as well. So it's not as if the government has has done nothing, but I think there's no doubt at all that they should should and could be doing more. Um, in particular, two things. One is that you know they've only increased the the value of benefits, including the state pension, by you know, about three or four um, percent. Whereas, of course, we now know inflation is is 9% and can possibly even head higher. So the real value of benefits that low-income households receive has has been reduced, which I think is wrong. I also think there's more they could do specifically on energy bills. Um, Quite a lot of the the energy bills are basically policy costs that the government sets of one type or another. That's things like social and environmental levies. And um, while I'm all in favour of taking more action to, to tackle climate change, I don't think the best way to do that now is to impose an additional lump sum charge on, on low-income households in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. So I think there's more that the government can do to lower energy bills specifically. So in sum, it's not as if the government has done nothing. It's actually done quite a lot. But I still think they need to do more. Well, we'll look at energy policy and the, the issues around energy bills shortly. But I just want to pick up on what you've mentioned about uh, monetary policy and uh, in particular, the Bank of England. I mean, we've got an inflation rate now of 9%, which is the highest it's been for 40 years. And earlier on Friday, uh, the former governor of the Bank of England, Lord King, said that the bank shares uh, responsibility for this cost of living crisis because he claims that it was too slow to raise the interest rates. And also, as you mentioned, because of those policies around excessive money printing, especially to to fund the, the lockdown measures over the last two years. Do you think he is right? Do you think that Bank of England does have a, a much larger role to play in this situation than is being made out at the moment? I, I think Lord King is is absolutely right. And indeed, I'll probably be a bit tougher in some of my language than, than even he has been. Um, I think arguably in recent weeks, the, the Bank of England has almost tried to sort of shift the blame or the responsibility onto, onto other people. Um, for example, the, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has been suggesting that, you know, workers should ask for smaller pay increases in order to contribute to to keeping inflation under control. Now, um, in effect, he's saying that, you know, low-income households struggling with the cost of living should should bear the burden of getting inflation back down. Um, That obviously is ethically and morally a bit awkward, but, but also I think it's bad economics as well. I mean, the reality is that, you know, wages are are a price like any other that should be set by the market. Uh, And if people can get 
higher wages because labour is in short supply, then then good luck to them. And that, I think, will help deal with one of the underlying inflation problems, which is a, a shortage of labour. So um, a lot of people have dropped out of the labour market in the last few years and not yet come back. Um, the way to get them back into work is surely to pay them higher wages. So um, I think the, the governor is, is a bit dodgy on the politics, but also actually a bit dodgy on the economics as well. At the end of the day, the, the Bank of England can control inflation by controlling the amount of money in the economy and the price of that money. Um, it's not really anybody else's job to, to accept lower wage increases or to do anything else in order to keep inflation down. And looking at the, the economy overall post-COVID, during the, the lockdown period and over the last two years, there have been a number of sectors that have really struggled, most notably in hospitality and the, the retail areas and sectors. How is the, the economy looking now that those lockdown measures have eased and uh, life really is starting to get back to normal, or back to how it was in 2019 and previously? Well, it's a it's a very mixed picture, but I think overall it's worth saying that the economy has recovered more quickly than than most people anticipated. So, in the early stages of the of the pandemic, most economists were not expecting the economy to recover to sort of pre pre COVID levels of activity until maybe next year, not until twenty twenty three. In fact, we already got back to that level at the end of last year or, or, or early this year. So, the economy has recovered more quickly than anticipated. I think there are two parts of that. Um, first of all, let, let's give some credit to the government here. I think a lot of the things that the government did, particularly the furlough scheme that protected millions of jobs and tens of thousands of businesses, that was quite a big success. But also it's a testament to the, the flexibility of the, the free market economy. So um, each successive lockdown seemed to have a smaller impact on the economy than anticipated and a smaller impact than the previous one because people and uh, businesses adapted. A very good example of this is the uh, the growth in online activity, you know, including in the in the retail sector. So, although high street shops suffered, in practice, most physical retailers now have a substantial online presence as well. So, people were able to to spend uh, a reason, reasonable rate throughout the, the pandemic. It's just they did so online rather than going physically to the shops. Um, hospitality, obviously, was one of the sectors hit the hardest, but mm. that's now starting to recover quite quickly as well, um, particularly following the lifting of the the last remaining COVID restrictions earlier this year. There are plenty of signs that hospitality is, is bouncing back. Now, a lot of this is, is very hard to measure. I'll give you an example here. Retail sales, the headline numbers, have actually been quite weak um, over the last few months, and that's raised concerns that the economy is sliding back into recession. But the, the retail numbers don't include spending on hospitality, so spending on pubs and restaurants and those sorts of things. Mm. So it's possible that people are spending less on the shops, uh, including online, and more instead um, on leisure activities. Mm. So um, I suspect the overall economy is holding up a bit better than some of those headline retail sales numbers suggest. Um, but there's no doubt that all of these sectors still face major headwinds. Obviously, you've got the, the cost of living crisis on the one hand, but also lots of companies are struggling with, with labour shortages. Um, as I said, lots of people have dropped out of the labour market in the last couple of years. And so firms are having to pay higher wages to attract people back in. So that's adding to the cost pressures on them. 
So the strength of the labour market is, is is positive for for some people. It's obviously good news if you are in work or looking for work, but it is making life a lot tougher for businesses that are struggling to recruit. And just on on your point about the retail market and how so many businesses adapted to moving online, there have been calls recently to actually look at replacing VAT or reforming VAT so it becomes an online sales tax. Uh, do do you think that would make sense in the the this new economy that we find ourselves in or do do you think that that would just be an unnecessary tax that we would put on businesses yes the the treasury actually has just completed a a consultation process on proposals to introduce an online sales tax and the idea is that might be a a one or two percent levy on the the value of transactions that are conducted over the internet or or alternatively perhaps a sort of one pound fee for for each delivery that you get Um, the problem with this is that well actually an awful lot of problems i mean one is it's not really clear what the purpose of this is supposed to be Um, it has been suggested that you could use the money raised from online sales tax to uh, to reduce business rates, but net effect of that would probably be to you know, transfer spending power from consumers to owners of, of, of commercial property, which is not obviously a, a change that you want to make. Um, I think also it's a worrying precedent that any sector that is that is doing well is going to be whacked with a punitive tax of one type or another. The reality is that uh, lots of people are now doing more shopping online um, because it's so convenient to, to do so. There's a big gain for consumers there. Do you really want to be taxing something that's new and, and innovative? Uh, and the final problem with it is the complication of it all. Um, as I said, lots of companies now have both a physical shop and an online presence. How do you decide which of the transactions attracts this tax and 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 which doesn't? And there's enormous numbers of, of grey areas, things like click and collect deliveries. I mean, do you do you regard that as a, an online sale yeah. if somebody actually goes to the shop and picks up the goods? So um, I think it's a, it's an awful lot of hassle for what actually wouldn't be an enormous amount of revenue. The, the sorts of numbers we're talking about here are maybe a, a billion pounds, which actually in the bigger scheme of the public finances isn't a isn't yeah. a big deal. So I think it's a, it's an awful lot of hassle in order to sort of add an additional complication to the tax system when there isn't really a clear rationale for it in the first place. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And one of the other issues that the world's facing at the moment is something, again, you mentioned earlier, which is disruption to supply chains. And of course, at the moment in in China, they've just gone into a near total lockdown in many areas. And as a consequence of that, in many of the biggest ports, there are just hundreds of container ships queuing to get into ports to offload their cargo and products to obviously send on elsewhere. So given how interconnected the global economy is, to what extent is this uh, issue in China affecting our economy and, and more broadly, the, the economies of Europe and the rest of the world? Well, it's having a very big impact, um, in particular in, in sectors like the, the car industry. So the, the things like the shortages of, of semiconductors are, are making it harder to, to make cars. And, and that's been driving up the price of, of secondhand cars, which is one of the, you know, the big upward pressures on inflation in, in, in lots of countries. Um, and it, there's a bit of bigger concern in the background here that this might cause a, a backlash against globalization itself. People will say, well, it's dangerous relying on these international supply chains. We should try and produce everything at home instead. And as a piece of economics, actually, that, that's pretty bad. There's overwhelming evidence that you know, free trade is, is good because, amongst other things, it encourages specialization and, 
economies of scale and so on. So um, if there was a backlash against globalization as a result of that, then that would be, would be bad. Um, I'd actually almost turn it around the other way, though. I think that the, the pandemic actually demonstrated some of the benefits of, of globalization, because after all, you know, things like the, the vaccines and, and production of personal protective equipment, PPE, I think it would have been impossible for any individual country to produce all of their own vaccines and, and all of their own PPE. So the ability to, to source those things from a wide range of alternative markets has been a, has been a good thing. Um, I think I put at this stage, I do have to mention Brexit. I think I think there's no doubt that the disruption to trade with with Europe has has made life more difficult for for British companies, and you know, means that inflation in the UK is probably higher than it would otherwise have been. Um, but at least there's a small silver lining there, which is that the disruption caused by Brexit has prompted some companies to to rethink their supply chains, perhaps diversify a little bit. So that the hit that that Britain has had from uh, the fallout from the war in Ukraine and the continuing COVID crisis in in China is probably less than it would otherwise have been as a result of that rethink. And j- just briefly on Brexit, we've had a number of issues relating to Northern Ireland protocol mm. recently, particularly around trade and uh, sending goods across the, the the border. And of course, that seemingly what seems to be a border down the Irish Sea. Do you think the government is right in saying that that needs to be completely ripped up and uh, just start again? Or do you think there are amendments that can be made to the existing arrangement so that there is a lesser disruption, but also eases the bureaucracy and uh, burden on those businesses? Well, I think one thing almost everybody agrees on at the moment is the the protocol as it is at the moment is not working properly. Um, It has basically created a a border in in the Irish Sea between uh, Great Britain and, and, and the North of Ireland. Um, that is causing two big problems. One is um, obviously disruption to trade and the diversion of trade from uh, one region to another. Uh, but the second is, is social and political problems because it means that you know you can't form a, an effective government in in the north of Ireland. So um, those are actually two criteria that have been met that would justify the government exercising its legal rights under Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and, and insisting on some sort of change. So um, there are problems here that I, I think need to be solved. Um, I think, to be honest, a little bit of blame lies on, on both sides. I think you know, the, the UK probably signed the deal without fully understanding what it means and you know, just wanted to get Brexit done. But also on the other side, I think the European Union has um, implemented the, the new rules or insisted on them being implemented in a very inflexible way. Uh, the idea that the the amount of trade that might ever take place uh, between the North of Ireland and the Republic could ever be a serious threat to the integrity of the single market was was clearly nonsense. So I think the European Union is partly using this as, as leverage to to try and drag the rest of the UK back into the, the single market and basically undo one of the main purposes of Brexit in the first place. So um, I think a little bit of blame lies on both sides. Um, with good political will, though, I think this problem can be fixed without the you know the trade war that, that some people fear. So you know, a bit more in, intelligent application of the rules, um, you know, lighter checks that are proportionate to the risks on both sides would mean that you know, we could come up with something a bit better than the existing protocol without tearing the whole thing up uh, and going back to sort of either economic chaos or worse still, of course, political chaos. Okay, I'd like to move on now away from the cost of living to look specifically at energy. And there was a reporter earlier this week from the Sky News economics editor, Ed Conway, saying that actually 
there's a, a big glut of gas in the UK to the point where there's effectively so much gas that no one's quite sure what to do with it. But wholesale gas prices are at their lowest point for 18 months. So given all of that, why are household energy bills and fuel bills so high when, in fact, there's clearly enough supply to meet the demand? Well, this, this is where it gets very complicated because of the off-gem price cap, basically. Um, the off-gem price cap is a, a limit on the amount that electricity suppliers are allowed to charge uh, to domestic customers. And it's set uh, and reviewed every six months by off-gem, the energy regulator. Um, it, it's, it's a well-meaning idea. I mean, the idea is to sort of protect consumers from being overcharged, while at the same time allowing firms to pass on legitimate costs and to make a, a small profit. And those legitimate costs include the, the wholesale cost of, of, of global energy. So basically what the, the cap is trying to do is replicate the prices that will be set in a sort of perfectly working competitive market in, in normal times, but to smooth them out a bit so that they only change every every six months. Now, as I say, that's a, that's a laudable objective, but in practice it's introduced all sorts of distortions into the into the market. And, and, and in particular, a lot of the pricing will therefore depend on what happens to a certain set of, of, of wholesale prices in the market based on... Uh, on futures prices, so sort of rolling three-month contracts and so on. Um, and that distorts things because it, it means that even if companies can provide or buy gas or energy more cheaply um, in the short term, price is still basically being decided by whatever speculators think is the appropriate level. Um, and that's partly why the, the lower prices that we're seeing now are not being passed on fully to consumers because everything is basically determined by the price cap instead. So this is a this is a bit of a mess, and I, I don't think I'd start from, from here. Um, it does lead to an enormous question of what's going to happen in the, in the autumn. So a, a lot of people who are worried about inflation rising even higher than it is now are talking about the possibility of another big increase in the off-gem price cap in, in October, and this possibly taking headline inflation well above, two, uh, well above 10%. Um, I actually think that's, that's unlikely for, for three reasons. One is that um, as you said, actually, energy prices have started to, to drop back. Uh, so there's a good chance that that element of the, the bills will be lower than anticipated. Um, the second point is that I think it's almost inevitable that the government itself will do more to, to lower bills. Um, I'm not sure why or how, but I mean, one idea might be to eliminate the VAT on domestic energy bills, or they could do more in terms of uh, you know, discounts that are available and subsidies to, to suppliers to, to pay for those. And then the third point is just a sort of more technical point, which is that a lot still depends on how the statisticians at the uh, Office for National Statistics decide to measure energy prices. I mean, for example, what will they do about the, the £200 discount that uh, people will be getting off their bills? Will they count that as a just a subsidy somewhere else in the system or actually a reduction in prices? And they haven't said what they're going to do yet. But the, the combination of those three things, so lower wholesale prices, more government action and decisions by the statisticians may well mean actually prices don't surge again in the autumn. And hopefully we, we've already seen the peak in inflation now in, in April or May. 
Um, but that's that's a big unknown. And as long as that uncertainty is there, that's going to continue, I think, to, to weigh on business and consumer confidence. And similarly, electricity prices as well, they're unusually low at the moment. But again, the, the bills are high. So the, will the lower wholesale prices that we have for electricity, as, as well as the, for, for natural gas, will we start to see an, an impact soon on those uh, those household bills and see the market start to correct itself and perhaps get a lower bill than we might be expecting in the not so distant future? Well, I, I certainly hope so. You know, natural gas prices are, are lower, uh, energy costs themselves, so uh, they're, they're lower. And in markets more generally, oil prices have, you know, leveled out. They're still at a high level, but they, they stopped rising. So there, there's some evidence that, you know, high energy costs are um, starting to starting to fade, and that that's what you'd expect actually for two reasons. One is the you know, demand is is weakening. Um, that's partly because economies are slowing, but also obviously we're in the the summer months where we're going to use less energy anyway to to heat homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other point is the you know, supply side response. It's sometimes said that the the best cure for high prices is is high prices because that incentivizes producers to uh, to create more energy or, or to meet demand for whatever goods and services it might be that are currently very expensive. So I think there are good reasons to think that inflation will drop back more sharply than people anticipate later in the year, not just for energy, but for other things, hopefully, including food and, and other goods and services as well. What do you make of the calls from the Labour Party for the government to put a windfall tax on energy company profits? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I, I do understand entirely, of course, the, the emotional argument in favour of a windfall tax. It, it does seem unfair that companies are able to benefit even indirectly from you know, the, the suffering in Ukraine or the, the pain being experienced by households in the UK. But um, I'm still against a, a windfall tax for, for, for two main reasons. One is that um, I think it's wrong to link a windfall tax to additional measures that you could take to, to lower household bills. It's often said we need a windfall tax to you know, raise enough money to, to cut household bills. I think that's wrong. I think we could afford to do that anyway. Um, the, the Treasury is actually raking in an enormous amount of extra money that it didn't anticipate at the moment from higher nominal incomes and, and profits and, and prices including, by the way, from the North Sea oil companies themselves. They'll be paying billions of pounds more in tax anyway because their profits have risen. So the, the Treasury can afford to do more to help uh, low-income households, even without a windfall tax. Um, my second objection to windfall tax is more sort of principled. I, I just don't like these sort of arbitrary and retrospective changes to the to the tax system. They increase business uncertainty. They they lower returns uh, from investment in the future. So even if a, a windfall tax may not have much impact on investment plans now, um, it would still, I think, make investment less profitable in future and, and, and discourage new companies from setting up and, and creating jobs. So um, I, I don't like our, um, windfall taxes on, on principle, but more importantly, at the moment, we don't really need one anyway because the government's got plenty of money if it wanted to do more to, to help lower those bills. And Labour have also called for an emergency budget from Rishi Sunak. Do you think there should be one or or should the Chancellor just simply wait until the scheduled budget in the autumn? Well, there are some, some good arguments here either way. The, a couple of arguments in favour of waiting. One is that you know, energy prices at least won't rise further from here. They won't rise until the Ofgem cap is reviewed. And it's possible, actually, they could fall in October. But at the very least, the Ofgem cap is doing its job in the meantime. Um, the second point is that there are actually some more 
uh, more support coming in in July. The increase in the national insurance threshold kicks in, and that's quite a substantial tax cut. You know, three hundred pounds for uh, for many people, and that you know, disproportionately helps people on, on low income. So it's not as if there's nothing more to come anyway. Um, against that, though, I think there are some rather stronger arguments for doing a bit more now. One is that the the problem is no longer just about energy prices; it's moved on, you know, particularly to to food prices, which will probably continue to rise in the short term. So there's a stronger case there for for helping out uh, low income households. Mm-hmm. And I also think you know, confidence is is pretty fragile. And although you could make a sort of rational economic case for waiting till the autumn, I think it it would be sensible to to act now. So I would expect the the chancellor to announce some additional support soon. Suggestions are he who probably do it via the the warm homes discount. Um, so that's the additional benefit that goes to those on on low incomes to help with their bills. Um, my personal preference would be to do it more generally through the through the benefit system in, in one way or another, maybe a, a top up to universal credit. But um, I think the important thing is that he, he seemed to do something more and soon rather than wait until the autumn. We've, we've touched on this a couple of times throughout our conversation today, but just specifically, how much has the war between Russia and Ukraine affected our economy, especially with the government wanting to move away from Russian oil and gas? Well, it's affected our economy much less than others, actually. Um, we are not particularly dependent on Russian oil or, or gas, nor is, the, nor is the US. It's having a far bigger impact on uh, countries elsewhere in Europe, particularly countries like Germany and Italy, that are heavily dependent on on Russian energy. And if we're if we're talking about which economies are most likely to be tipped into recession by this, then it, it's countries like Germany and Italy, not the not the UK. But of course, we we can't escape the the global increase in energy and and, and food prices. So we're suffering from that. Uh, and there's one respect in which we're more vulnerable than other countries, which is that. Um, our government almost uniquely is raising taxes. So despite some of the tax cuts I've talked about earlier, they only reverse about you know, one sixth of the tax increases that the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has, has announced since he, since he took the job. So you know, we have an odd situation where we're still effectively tightening fiscal policy at a time when other countries are, are loosening fiscal policy. And I think we're in the wrong position here. My, my personal view, and actually lots of other economists would say the same thing, is that we're now in a position where monetary policy is too loose. So the Bank of England should be more aggressive in raising rates and reversing quantitative easing. But at the same time, fiscal policy is too tight and you know, the government shouldn't have raised uh, some of these taxes and at the very least should be offsetting them with bigger cuts elsewhere and also increases in the real value of benefits. Okay, so just to finish then, looking more broadly at the whole cost of living and energy crisis that we, we face, what do you think are the most urgent measures the government should take, which would have a near immediate effect to tackle this worsening economic situation? Well, I mean, two things. First of all, there's no substitute for getting more money into people's pockets uh, if you want to have an immediate impact. And there, um, there are a number of ways you can do that. I mean, they've, they've done a few things around council tax and um, the universal credit taper, so allowing people to keep more of their income as they uh, as they earn more from work. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you need a direct top-up. Uh, my preference would be just to uh, add a bit more money to, to universal credit and to, and to pensions to to tide people over. Uh, you could do that indirectly via the, the warm homes discount, but 
you know, whichever method you choose, I think basically you need to, to give more money in the in the short term. Uh, the other thing to do is to is to make sure that the markets work properly, that incentives are right. So you need to make sure that it you know, work pays, um, that people are encouraged to uh, come back into the labour market who, who might have dropped out and to make sure that you don't have loads of government regulations that are unnecessarily adding to the cost of living. And I think there's an awful lot that the government can do there. But in the short term, at least, there's no real substitute for, for giving poor people more money to allow them to pay their bills. OK, Julie and Jessup, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure.